0: Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 54 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. My guest this episode is Ollie Cohen, one of the founders of the Jolly Hog brand of sausages, bacon, and other meaty products. As some of you will know Ollie is also a former professional rugby player. And so we talk about how and why he transitioned from a career in rugby to running a food brand with his two brothers, and how his experience as a professional sportsman shaped his attitude towards risk taking and learning in public. One of the things I found particularly interesting talking to Ollie is that Ollie and his brothers also have a hospitality and events business, and Ollie talks about how they use insight from the hospitality and events side to spot trends, try out new products, and inform NPD for the retail side of the business. So that's coming up in a moment, but first let me bring you up to speed with some of the big stories in food and grocery retail this week. ASDA has chartered its first-ever cargo ship to ensure key festive items reach its stores amid the ongoing supply chain crisis. The ship carries 350 containers of items from East Asia, including decorations, toys and clothing. ASDA also gave a trading update this week, which revealed that like-for-like sales in the three months to the end of September fell by 0.7% year-on-year. Little has a new UK boss. Ryan McDonnell, currently Deputy CEO for Great Britain, is taking over from Christian Hertnagel, who is returning to Germany to run Lidl Deutschland. Morrison's is replacing soya-based chicken feed with an alternative made from insects on some of its farms to produce carbon-neutral free-range eggs. The insects will be fed on waste from a Morrison's fruit and veg processing site, the new feed is being rolled out to 10 farms initially, but Morrison's plans to start selling the new eggs from next year. Waitrose is ramping up its presence in Scotland with a new partnership with upmarket Edinburgh convenience store chain Majotta. More than 600 Waitrose products will go on sale in Majota's shops. Sainsbury's has said it plans to raise £3 million this Christmas period to help fight food poverty in the UK. It's running a campaign called Help Brighten a Million Christmases between the 1st and the 24th of December in partnership with organisations such as Fairshare. Marks & Spencer is trialling augmented reality technology at its Westfield Food Hall in London. It's testing an app called Wayfinder, which allows users to enter a product and then be directed by the app to its exact shelf location in store. The tech is currently being trialled with staff, but there are plans to open it to the public if the trial proves successful. The government has announced the appointment of eight new agri-food and drink attaches who will be placed in key export markets around the world to promote British food and drink. Pret-a-Manger has started trialling a new loyalty scheme called Pret Perks. Customers will earn a star for every food or drink item they buy, and once they've collected 10 stars, they can exchange these for rewards, such as a cookie or popcorn. The new scheme is being piloted with customers on Pret's coffee subscription for now, with a wider rollout planned for next year. Finally, remember the brouhaha about Tesco's Christmas advert featuring Santa proving his Covid vaccination status. The ad attracted 5,000 complaints, but it was this week cleared by advertising watchdog the ASA. The ASA said while it understood that some people disagreed with the vaccine programme, the reference to vaccination in the Tesco ad was likely to be understood as humorous commentary on travel restrictions and unlikely to cause widespread offence. These are some of the big food and grocery retail stories this week. You can find links to everything I mentioned in the show notes and on thepicklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Ollie Cohen. Ollie, welcome to the Picklist. Thank you for being my guest.
1: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Now you are one of the founders of the Jolly Hog which is a premium brand of sausages and bacon quite a few other things these days as well which I think we'll um, come on to. You are also a former professional rugby player, you played for Harlequins for many years and also for Wales as an international. I'm saying this like I know anything about rugby as you know I grew up in Germany, we are not a rugby nation so I know Zero about rugby. I do okay. know about sausages though, so I yeah. think I think we're going to be all right.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've probably got plenty to cover.
0: Um, absolutely. And there is actually an important link between your rugby career and the Jolly Hog because you started making sausages while you were off injured. Talk to me about that. When was that and why turn to sausages of all things?
1: Yeah, so on March the 19th, 2007 for my birthday... Um, my wife Ella bought me a sausage making machine and it was a Kenwood chef attachment um, and it ground the meat and, and stuffed into a, into a skin. So it made sausages. And it was like, the day I got that we were living in a really small one bed flat in Twickenham when I was playing for Harlequins, um, I was out injured. So I had a year of injury with a knee injury, which is actually quite common as a rugby player. Um, and I had this, I've all, before that I had this burning desire to, um make sure that uh, life after rugby was kind of sorted because you never know when it's over. So I was like, right, when's my what's my second career when I retire and when that day comes? And I, I knew in my bones it was gonna be in food. Um, and I knew that I wanted to work for myself. But I didn't know exactly how that was going to pan out, so I did lots of other things. So I, I peeled um, tomatoes in Gordon Ramsay's restaurant for 12 hours to make a gazpacho soup, to realise that I don't want to be a Michelin star chef, and I did <laughs> lots of things, and then I got given the sausage making machine, and that was it. Um, and I I fell in love with making sausages and curing bacon, um, and um, the early days were very simple. It was go to the market buy some meat, some different cuts. I'm, I'm dyslexic, so I learned through YouTube um, and 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 yeah, just sort of did it myself um, and spent hours looking at videos. And then I asked Josh if he fancied joining me. So the reason we were called Jolly is, is Josh and Ollie Jolly. I know it's very clever. <laughs> um, uh, and then we called ourselves, um, well, the first name we called ourselves was the Jolly Hog and Sausage Company Limited, which was a real mouthful. Um, and yeah me and Josh were just in my kitchen covering the place in pork fat and sausage making is is great fun I love it but it's pretty messy yeah so um yeah it was carnage and we needed a kind of an outlet so Josh was a cabinet maker and um I said look why don't you jack in being a cabinet maker for dad because you don't really enjoy it um and and let's, let's start up this thing and it was Day one was, you know, in the car park at Harlequins for a a game at Twickenham, um, selling sausages um, to the public. and, um, and, and, And we've grown from there, really. So that was the that was the early days. And that was the association with rugby.
0: I'm so intrigued, though, that you knew straight away that you wanted it to be something to do with food. Where did that come from?
1: It's a good question. And me, Max and Josh, because um, my middle brother's involved in the business as well. Um, we, we sometimes talk about this. And I don't know what it is. I think it's like this three brother, it's definitely based around family. It's definitely based around a love for sharing food together as a family. Um, because all of our best memories as a family in my house, in the Cone house, were with my parents, round the table, Sunday roast, or sharing big meals. We are all really big, we we're all greedy. And it was kind of, I think it came from that. I think sausages came from our best holidays as kids. We went down to Exmouth. Um, We went camping um, and we pretty much went down there for six weeks. Dad would drop us down with mum. We'd each take a friend and we'd have a lot of barbecues. Um, And it was from this particular butcher's shop that we loved these sausages. So I think it came from that. Um, So but I've always been, it's kind of just, it's always been something I've, I've been very passionate about. Lots of people talk about being passionate about food, but we genuinely are.
0: And I talk to quite a few food brand founders on this podcast, and they'll often talk about that steep learning curve that you go through, A, when you start running your own business, but then particularly in food. And I imagine even more so in meat, because there are quite a lot of rules and regulations and technical challenges and sourcing challenges to to kind of get your head around. How did you approach learning about that did you have people in your network you could turn to to just kind of learn the ropes
1: um I'd definitely say it sounds cheesy but we we learned the hard way so we've you know where we are now as a business is is very very different to where we were when we first started trade in 2008 um and we've always kind of been as three brothers, fairly robust, what, you know, very driven, very happy to kind of, we've, I mean, we've definitely built our business from um, giving away product, um, making good relationships and just beg, borrowing and stealing at the start. Um, and there was days when we, we, as you said, you know, how do you start these things? We, we just had to learn the hard way. We went to events and sold absolutely nothing um, because we were in the wrong spot. Um, we, we made sausages and then our freezer van broke down. Um, some of the early days of setting up what, it, you know, it was an events festival business selling sausages at a street food level were, uh, <laughs> were kind of like laid really good foundations for us as we grew because actually I think being at the coalface and selling product to the public uh, um, it is a real, you know, if you can do it and you can master it and you still love it with a great product, um, it's it's a fantastic bedrock to build a business. Um, and at the time, it was just about having the very best sausages we could possibly make. It wasn't about um, this fantastic commercial opportunity. How we learned was we, um, we went out and asked lots of people. We went out, we weren't afraid to go, you're an expert at this, can you help us? And there were lots of people. We were fortunate because I played rugby for Harlequins. We had a very strong network. So we were very fortunate to be able to go and ask people that had been there and done it. Um, and people, mentors along the way, you know, have helped us avoid mistakes. Um, and we've been through some really tricky ones, you know, some really hard times. Um, particularly, you know, a couple of years ago, we, we opened a restaurant that didn't go very well for us um, uh, and was extremely costly. But we, we as a business, are big believers in you know putting yourself outside your comfort zone, learning from it, and growing from it. And that's something. I definitely learned through being a professional sportsman, because every single day of playing professional rugby felt uncomfortable for me. Um, I did it for 14 years and it, yeah, there's nowhere to hide. Um, you know, and if you make a mistake, it's sometimes in front of 80,000 people and you become robust um, and you want to push yourself. I was also very lucky to be surrounded by you know, 50 other very driven um, sometimes very hairy, big, um, <laughs> ambitious rugby players. And and I think that helps set us up. Um, but yeah, we, we certainly make quite a lot of mistakes along the way, but we've learned from them and I'm sure we'll continue to do that, but we're trying to do something great. So it's gonna happen.
0: When you first looked to make that jump from selling at matches to actually getting into grocery retail, what were your first conversations with buyers like?
1: <laughs> it's such a good question. I mean, we've got like, so many good stories about the early days and if I was a fly on the wall now as to ask me, Max and Josh, going into a buyer's <laughs> meeting, um, uh, we did practice. So we actually, mm. I remember distinctly, remember going into practice with a friend's friend who was a buyer who was buying tinned fish um, and had an hour just to go through and just get my ducks in a row. And, um, I think part of it was, well, what was it like? There was 100% like being outside your comfort zone there as an experience. There was um, different phrases that we didn't know. I remember a buyer saying to me um, in, the, in the in my very first buyer's meeting, you know, but will this be margin accretive? Mm. Uh, and I looked at Max and went, and he looked at me and with this like glazed look on his face and I went, I'll have to get back to you. And I had to Google what it meant. um, Because there was a kind of a whole different language that we didn't know. But we've learned. um, And uh, I really, really enjoy that part of it. Um, I enjoy, you know, I now really enjoy listening to buyers and getting some feedback, um, understanding their challenges, because that's really important. Um, So we've definitely come a long way. Uh, on that front, um, but that's a bit I enjoy getting in the kitchen, talking about product, um, and it not all being about a spreadsheet.
0: And speaking of your range, how big is the range now? Because I mentioned right at the start sort of sausages and bacon, that's the heartland for the brand. Yeah. but you've you've got beef burgers now, you've gone into chicken yeah. sausages as well. Yeah. You've done a lot in terms of NPD. Just give us a sense of of how big the range is now.
1: Well, I think we've gone to I think we're around twenty different lines. Um, we've got more um, in the pipeline in terms of NPD. Um, and we've gone into a number of new categories in the last 18 months. So our core business is still sausages and bacon, and it always will be. Um, that's what the Jolly Hog is about. We felt that the brand had some stretch um, into some other areas um, in other proteins and other categories. So um, a big one for us is we launched into ham. Um, so jolly good ham um with three lines, uh, potentially four. um and that's been really successful. Um, so um that's an area I think that is going to be good for us long term. Um, also snacking. um, we've got soft set scotch egg. um so um, that's been a really interesting area um, for us um, and a new one to explore. And I think there's you know extensions that can come from that in in my mind. Um, the Great British Picnic in my head um, and and then we've also um, well, we've been in it for a while but we're in slow cooks we're in pulled pork and ribs which is kind of what we do at our restaurants and our events as well so that again was natural for us you're right though we have gone into Jolly Hen um, so chicken sausage which we're panelling today um, which is all part of the job um, and and that's been good I think Pen, uh, Jolly Hen's been out for us um maybe a good two or three years now Mm. um uh, and then yeah we've we've dipped our toe with uh into the water with jolly cow um, and our smash burger and a lot of our i guess a lot of our extensions and areas that we've gone into are um because of our hospitality business so we take a lot of insight and gather a lot of information around food trends and Um, where we could go with our business from our hospitality, which is obviously, it's been kind of decimated, well, it Mm. was decimated by the lockdown, but we're fortunate we've got a restaurant um, that's done quite well um, through delivery and Uber Eats. Um, And this is
0: the Pigsty in Bristol, isn't it? Yeah,
1: that's Pigsty. Um, And then our our events business, which is quite big, or was quite big, and it was kind of how we built our business, is also a fantastic place to be able to go and trial products and see if the Jolly Hog can stretch into other areas if people get it. So we use those for trialing MPD, gathering insight, um, see if things can work. And it doesn't always work, but actually a lot of it does. If you can try it in our casual dining setup on a pig board at Pigsty down at wapping Wharf in Bristol um, and really see if people enjoy it and transform it into a retail product and it lands, that is like massively satisfying for us.
0: Totally. And actually, that but that connection to me makes a lot of sense. And especially as a smaller brand, because having data and being able to come to a buyer and really make your case for a new product, I think can be quite challenging. So I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense to be able to say, actually, we do have that casual dining side to the business. We have an event side. We already know how people respond to these types of products.
1: Yeah, I, I think we didn't know it. And it sounds really clever what we've done but we we basically didn't know that's what we were developing accidentally mm. and now we lean on it way more than we ever did. Um, and you know the hospitality and restaurant side of our business is massively important. it's not massively profitable at all but um, we are able to gather this insight and you know ultimately if we can go to Goodwood festival of speed then and sell you know a load of, our product and get a load of feedback over a weekend that is gold for us to be able to do that um we're not we get access to some data um but not not to the level that some of the big brands are able to so we have to kind of go a bit guerrilla on it
0: totally and it's a really challenging time For the food industry at the moment, particularly also in meat and in the pork sector, there's labour shortages, logistics challenges, pigs being backlogged on farm, etc, etc. So I'm really interested to understand how you have navigated some of these challenges as a brand and actually the articles you have picked... I think will allow us to talk about some of these issues before we start talking about your specific articles. Tell me a bit about your reading habits, because you said earlier you're dyslexic and you like learning through video. So I'm really interested. How do you keep up to date with industry news trends and developments? What does that look like for you?
1: Um, Well, it's an interesting question. So if you ask my wife, she'd be like, you never read. I do read. (laughs) So mainly if I read, um, I'll read autobiographies. So the last ones were like The Founder, which was the McDonald's story, and then um, uh, Shoe Dog, which was the Nike story. I absolutely love founder-led autobiographies. Um, to get information into my head, um, I go podcast. Um, so, you know, food podcasts like yours. Um, so I, I cycle. So that's a really good way of me getting information into my head. I read The Grocer um uh and then what usually happens and this is so lazy but it works well for me is my dad um has got loads of time on his hands so he reads the papers and then sends me articles that he thinks are relevant for me um he then proceeds to phone me and tell me about <laughs> them uh in loads of detail so um yeah it's a little bit lazy but that's how i get information in basically
0: I think that makes sense. It's a sort of personal curation system, almost, isn't it? (laughs) With very intense kind of follow up um, by by the sounds of things. So let's talk about the the first article you've chosen, which is from The Observer. And the headline is It's Brexmas from Turkeys to Alcohol How Will Shortages Affect Christmas? And just for the benefit of listeners, um, the article basically provides an overview of some of the big issues affecting and disrupting key festive sectors and products. So Christmas trees, alcoholic drinks, toys and food. And in the food section in particular, they are quoting pig farmer Sophie Hope from Gloucestershire who explains that a shortage of workers who'd usually come over from the EU has led to pigs being culled and some farmers ending up with pigs that are too big and therefore cannot be sold. And she fears that retailers could be plugging gaps on shelf with imported pork instead of British uh, British pork in the run-up to Christmas. Ollie, what made you pick this article? What stood out to you from it?
1: I just guess it's really relevant for me. And- what I'm not gonna do is come on here and tell you that I'm an expert about the pig industry or farming, because I'm just not. Um, we have developed a really nice brand, which I think is a nice brand. Um, uh, and it's basis around sausage and bacon. We get some insight as to how, um, how the whole supply chain works. We've got good insight into how it works, but for us, this has been building for a number of months. Um, and I think I spoke at um, a a small farming conference a good few months ago. Uh, I I was kind of bit at the end of the day and the atmosphere in the room was so dark, like it was so dark and, you know, pig, pig farmers from around the country, some indoor bread, some outdoor bread, talking about some of their stories, you know, in tears, you know, it was, it was really hard to listen to. And I, for me, we've got a responsibility to have a deeper understanding of how this supply chain works, not just as a business, but as someone who eats it as well. Um, and I think the interesting bit is not everyone knows where it's going to land. I mean, even before the summer, when there was supply chain difficulties and talk a bit, people were going, right, what is Christmas going to be like this year? Mm. Because last year, it was mayhem, right? People didn't quite know if you could go home for 24 hours. What the rules were? It changed, right? So everyone in Jan, Feb, March this year were tr- coming out of that, going, "Okay, what is Christmas? Where's it going to land? Is it a big year for pigs and blankets? Is it? Is everyone going to be sharing in the same room?" And that's that was hot topic um, for a number of months before supply chain discussions kicked off. So I think every day, no one quite knows where it's going to land. Um, There's so many different issues around supply shortages, um, delivery, cardboard, um, there was CO2. Um, So I guess for me, it's a responsibility for us to know what's happening and try and manage it as best we can, but, and also try and look after the farmers that um, are having a really tough time.
0: How have you coped with that uncertainty as a smaller brand? Because as you say, it's been so difficult to plan and to really understand what Christmas is going to be like. How, how have you coped with that?
1: I'll be totally honest with you. It's like it's, it's new territory for us. So like, you know, when I talk about learning and being outside of our comfort zone, we, we've we never had experienced um, times where like this. Um, and for us the biggest thing is we've just had to find out as much information as we can and be completely honest and transparent about that um and so that's that's been the bit that we've had to do and it's taken up a lot of time but you know we've got a responsibility to make sure we do it properly but it is new territory for us and it's good learning for us um you know heading into um other Christmases because it just hasn't I'll be honest it hasn't been an issue before yeah so we haven't had a backup plan it's just been like this is what happens
0: now the second article you have picked is also from the observer and the headline there is greasy spoon cafes closed doors as today's diners shun fry-ups and again for the benefit of listeners uh, this is reporting on many traditional cafes closing uh, with a key reason being changing tastes and also growing concerns around health and the CAFs they report as having been forced to close include Bonnie's Cafe in Bristol, which is described as an institution that offered the strongest cup of tea in BS5. I quite enjoyed that um, as, as a description. Um, you are from Bristol. Um, your own uh, restaurant is in Bristol as well. Pigster, we've already talked about it. Why did you pick this particular article? What stood out from you? I don't
1: know. It just It just got me because... Um, I felt a bit sad about it because my uh, my dad's workshop. My dad was a cabinet maker, and opposite his workshop was a cafe, um, and it was just. I've got such good memories of dad going in there every Friday for ham egg and chips, um, and it, honestly, it was like a, it's like a t- it's like a time warp going into it. Um, it had um, some grotty newspapers had those chairs the wipeable chairs that are like bolted to the ground um the food was extremely greasy and gave you heartburn but we loved it um and I totally get it and actually the quote in there I think it was by Jay Rayner about um you know these places were set up in the old days to be to serve highly calorific meals to to manual workers yeah Uh, and actually the cafe that dad used to go to was just packed full of builders so it was kind of I get why they needed to have Wipeable seats because it was just in and out. Get the calories in, off to work, and I feel I don't know. I feel a bit gutted about it. I eat, you know, even though I've got a restaurant and we do brunch, uh, and we're you know we're partly to blame because we probably do you know well we do avocados and posh breakfasts, um, but yeah, I feel a bit sad about it because it was a, it feels like a kind of a bit of an end of an era. Um, but, yeah, I loved the blunt service of these places. You know, it was cash. It was bumper breakfasts, It was just get as much as you can down you. Um, I do get it, though. I get it why, you know, some of these places have, and areas have been gentrified um, because it's not necessarily what lots of people want to eat. But I just feel a bit emotional about it
0: yeah and it absolutely is a is a loss of an institution, as you said though it's like if people are working in offices and they are no longer doing manual work to the same extent, that level of grease and calories also doesn't end well, so it's sort of it makes absolute sense that that tastes are changing and I thought actually, what you do with your menu at Pigster is quite interesting because it's um very much it has a sort of traditional British feel to it and you can get your bacon baps and your scotch eggs and your fry up but you do as you said you add that modern twist you add something fresh to it that appeals to a younger generation as well whether that's smashed avocado or halloumi fries but you know you have to kind of keep pace with with changing tastes though don't you
1: yeah, part of the reason I love pigsty in our business is because I think it keeps us on trend yeah. uh, um, as a retail business as well. So lots of the things, as we say, we've developed in there, we want to get into retail. Um, brunch, like Saturday brunch and Sunday brunch is some of our busiest times during the week um, because of what we offer with a really good flat white and a sharing breakfast um, and a walk around the docks. It goes well for us, um, but yeah, I I kind of, I don't know i I do feel this this calf that I used to go to sorry, going back to it. you could also get a roast dinner in it as well mm. and just like there was just something really warming about that um but yeah, I think uh yeah we, we with pigsty is it is it is definitely a different uh I wouldn't say we're a calf
0: no no I mean it definitely has a looking at the menu it doesn't have um a, a sort of calf feel to it but it just feels like an updated version of, of yeah. some of the the sort of British classics and you know you're absolutely right it's it is a loss, I think, to lose those calves. It's quite interesting, though, when you look at the price difference, because of course one of the challenges is that when you've got people like you know places like Pigsty moving in, it is a, a different price point yeah. to what those you know sort of bargain um, yeah. breakfast used to be like. And of course, you are very specific about your sourcing and supportive. British as well and you do wonder if you took a look behind the scenes at some of the casts whether the there's you know if you're really having to hit that price point you're not necessarily committing to you know buying higher welfare or even buying buying British so
1: yeah 100% and one thing one of my favorite things is is at pigsty if I sit in the corner and I don't wear a piece of jolly hog gear um so they don't know who I am and a very, very simple bacon sandwich comes over with a cup of tea and someone loves it, then that's just gold for me, because ultimately we know that people are, you know, eating slightly um, lesser amounts of meat Um, and actually, but when they do and it's really good bacon, like it's really good, it's thick cut, it's smoked, it's black, treacle cured and it's in a really good bun or some sourdough with some butter and a really nice brown sauce. So that is a treat, but it's a simple thing, done really well. Um, but yeah, definitely in terms of price point, I mean, um, yeah, our fry up is our pigsty breakfast is would be a lot more expensive than the four quid calf with it, including a cup of tea, uh, the bumper breakfast. So, yeah, it's definitely different.
0: I'm interested, though, in what you were saying about trying out some Trends or sort of keeping up with trends and trying out new ideas um, at Pigsty that could then potentially filter through to retail without giving away your your NPD yeah. pipeline. Are there any particular trends that you are picking up on at the moment that you're excited about or that you think have lots of potential?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think it definitely in the snacking market. Mm. Um, so we're able to do from Pigsty, we're able to do some good sort of grab and go uh, lunch options in the snacking market. Um, which is really good. Um, what else have we got on the car? Co- oh, I mean, we're doing this ludicrous thing called the um, World's First Pigs in Blankets Cafe this weekend. Um, oh, okay,
0: is... well, you need to explain that. How? Do... <laughs> yeah, well,
1: Sorry. in all honesty, it's a bit of a publicity stunt, but we um, it's, uh, it, we basically came up with this menu. Um, so we've got Pibtatas Bravas, we've got Bucks Pibs, we've got Pigs in Blankets Sushi, <laughs> we've got a pigs and blanket trifle. Um, we've got Yorkshire Pibs. Um, there's there's loads going on. Uh, we've got p- pigs and blanket donuts. Um, whether this is any any of this will ever make it into retail, I have no idea. Um, but it's certainly got people talking about pigs and blankets um at a good time. Um, what have we done? We, we we've done a hell of a lot, we did a hell of a lot of work on our chicken sausage over the time. Um, so there might be some development in that area for us um, that we've been able to use through the restaurant. Um, I guess a lot of the sort of smoked and slow cooked meats we've been mm. able to try um, and that and that barbecue trend um, has continued so we'll be able to do a lot more of that at pigsty um but i guess also what i'm conscious of is that we as a business are as i say our core business is sausage and bacon. And if we want to hang our hat on having the best tasting sausages and bacon, then we need to continue to work on that um, and we're able to do that. So it, it is not always about coming up with the next um, big flavour or the next pigs in blankets, world's first cafe. It's about making sure that if our proper pork sausage is our best tasting sausage, that you know we've been making the same recipe since day dot, that we continue to make sure it's really good. And it's from the best cuts with the great seasoning. and It's made really well um, because there is a science and a a bit of an art behind sausage making.
0: Now, the final piece we're going to talk about um, is one I picked, and it's not really a newspaper article at all. It's actually a little profile piece on the Red Bull website on three England rugby stars and their approach to nutrition. Um, it is, as I said, on the Red Bull website. So, unsurprisingly, Red Bull plays a very important role in their <laughs> yeah. approach to nutrition. But um, they're also giving some really interesting insight and colour into their relationship with food and what nutrition is like when you are a uh, professional athlete. Um, one of the things that really stood out to me was just um, some of the pressures around weight management, you know, suddenly having to increase your intake to 5,000 calories because you need to bulk up and get bigger. and then some someone on the same team might be, you know, being put on a diet where they need to cut. Um, And I particularly enjoyed a crate. I think it was from Joe Marler who said, with England, we have the best chocolate biscuit cake you could ever imagine. One nutritionist came in and tried to make it a bit healthier. We haven't seen him again. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Now, there is a serious side to to this piece there because I'm really intrigued. As a former professional athlete, how did you approach nutrition during your career? What was your relationship with food like?
1: <laughs> this is really funny on a number of levels because if anyone that I played rugby with thought I was getting a serious question about nutrition and I had to answer it seriously, they'd be like, what a joker. Um, but I will. Um, but the And also, when you sent me the article, you don't know this, but I played rugby with Joe Marler. Oh, right. Um, and... The person in there, he quotes about there was an, a time in his career that some big lads left the squad and retired that were 140 kegs, and some of the coaches wanted him to make up for the weight by putting on weight. He's talking about me, <laughs> um, so that I is don't know. Brilliant. What yeah. So um, I guess uh, yeah. So what did food mean to me as a rugby player? What first thing? One thing I absolutely loved about being a rugby player was the amount of calories that you could consume guilt-free was unbelievable. It was off the chart Um, and guilt-free food's always brilliant, right? If you've earned it um, and you can have some indulgence, it's great. So we did that a lot. Um, I consumed a hell of a lot. Um, uh, I'm called Twentz. They call me Twentz, which is a 20 stone cone. Um, And what did food mean to me? I guess, look, on a serious note, if you don't get your nutrition right, um, you cannot perform as an athlete. You just can't. Um, uh, the game has changed a lot in the last sort of, when did I retire? Eight years ago. So it's probably, it was, you know, it's always been, it's been professional for a long time, but I'd say people are leaner and smaller in weight now than they were when I played. Um, there's this quicker, the game's quicker. So you have to be um, more of a machine. Um, I guess, uh refueling and making sure that you look after your body is number one uh, especially when it comes to recovery so a lot a lot of professional sport is about recovery time um downtime making sure you're hydrated making sure you're recovering you're you know you're getting the right protein levels in there's i guess there's it felt like like for me there was always two camps there was one camp that were always playing above their body weight so they had to get more calories in um, try and sustain bigger body mass than was natural for their frame to play the game and there was the other camp which i was in that needed to lose a few pounds mm-hmm. to get around a pitch quicker um, but we had we had access to like very good nutritionalists so you know you could have a food diary you know we had some of the best in the business in terms of strength and conditioning um that would look after all your programs so we had access to a lot of stuff some players took it more seriously than others. Um, and some people you know uh, liked a few treats and a few beers at the weekend but um, the good thing for me was rugby was about always about different shapes and sizes not everyone's the same shape Um, so I was fortunate
0: yeah. And one of the things I'm so interested in what you were saying, though, about that, that sort of relationship with food and those two camps that you just um, mm. described that were sort of potentially having to eat a little bit more than they might be comfortable with or, yeah. or having to kind of cut back a little bit more. Because, again, I think it's Joe in that right at the end of the piece, he's asked about any advice he would give to young athletes about food and... I think what he says is sort of really important, actually, is sort of try to have a positive relationship with food. Don't yeah. think about it as good foods and bad foods. Because that can, I imagine, can happen quite quickly if you're having to be so focused on your on your nutrition and it potentially has such a big impact on, on your career. Did you find that sometimes thinking about food kind of took the joy out of it a little bit? or? <laughs>
1: I, 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 I I was basically pretty relaxed about it uh, being honest. So I was always in the, it might sound a bit old school, but I was always kind of in the camp of, um, I, I knew my body. Um, I definitely could have eaten better. Um, I was definitely one of those guys that when it came to fat testing, um, like, uh, regretted, um, the summer that I'd had off, um, (laughs) so uh but yeah yeah, you know, some of the guys took it extremely seriously and it really benefited them and really helped them to perform much better at the weekends and you know those guys probably got a boatload more caps than me um and you know ultimately if you can move around a pitch and you're lean and you're you know you're covered in muscle um you're just going to be more effective in the game um but there is a level that if you're too highly tuned i, I believe that you know that can cause some injuries so because it is a physical sport you have to be carrying a bit um to get around i guess just making sure you manage yourself and knowing your own body is really important and probably what joe's saying there is sometimes that takes time so mm-hmm. as a young player coming out of the academy you don't necessarily know exactly how your body is going to perform to certain foods and certain diets um and you need to kind of make up make your own way but the guys that were Struggling to put on weight, you know. I I've got I've got a really good friend who, pretty much, played three stone heavier than his natural body weight all the time, and he just, he just struggled to keep it on. He yeah. he struggled to get the calories in, um which sounds like it should be all right, but he just did because you you know you're burning throughout training in the week and games, you're burning a lot.
0: I can imagine. Now we're nearly out of time. Before I let you go, just give us a sense of what's next. For the jolly hog what's next what's the what are the sort of big plans you have for 2022 as far as you can share them at this stage
1: that's a really good question what are the big plans we've grown a lot in the last 18 months um with new customers new lines new consumers um uh, we've we've exported this year um which i just never thought would come this quickly
0: which countries have you exported to
1: um uh abu dhabi sorry dubai um and we're talking to other countries um we've we've gone into um gusto um, uh, which has been fantastic um and we're just looking at other channels so um yeah i guess where are we going next year that sounds really vague i guess we need we've grown so much um we've got such a good team we need to make sure that what we're doing is sustainable um uh for the future. We've got loads more to grow. We've got new customers. We've got loads more to grow in loads more areas. But just keeping to our core um is 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 our biggest uh, biggest target really growing our core business is what we want to do next year. Um there's nothing too whiz bang um from our point of view, but we'd like to find some more channels. I think the rapid delivery space is is a really interesting space um which which we're in um and uh, at the moment. Um but yeah, we'd like to, you know, grow into uh, grow our export business, I think. Um, but yeah, there's been I guess what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way is it's been a mad two years on the retail growth front for us. We grew 50% year on year last year, which is huge for us. So um we need to take stock and continue to grow our core business. That'll be the plan for next year.
0: Super. Ollie? If people want to connect with you after having listened to this episode or just find out a little bit more about the jolly hog, what's the best way to do that?
1: Um, oh, I don't mind. They can they can go on LinkedIn, um, get me on LinkedIn. Um, I sit next to the uh, guys that run the website. Um, so if they wanted to go through the inbox on the website, um, they contact me there. Um, more than happy to help. Um I'm all, I'm a big fan of sharing. So like if there's things that I can help other brands and other businesses out with, that's no problem for me because we've had so many, so much help over the years from other people that have been there and done it and given me an hour or whatever. So I'm happy to share my knowledge, even though I am definitely not an expert.
0: Super. Ollie. thank you so much for being my guest.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been great.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Pick List a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglots.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter.
1: See you next time.